Hello and welcome to the BLB podcast. This is the fourth episode in a series where we talk about the short story form, the writing process and how to get published. The BLB podcast is a new project from Brooklyn Bookshop. I'm Kate Ellis and this is my co-host Peter J. Coles. Hello. Hi there. Today <laughs> we are delighted to be recording in person for the first time and we're very happy to be sharing the favourite event space today with short story writer Jem Calder. Yeah, so Jem was born in Cambridge and lives and works in London. His fiction has been published in The Singing Fly and Granter. Reward System is his first book and was published by Faber on May 5th. We're going to begin today with an excerpt from Jem's story, Search Engine Optimization. Search engine optimization. Six white males between the ages of 27 and 55 are seated in a room. Their Friday late morning conference call is over, but it is still too early to be reasonably lunch. In front of each male, on the laminate anti-fingerprint surface of the room's central table, is a photocopied spiral-bound copy of the same presentation as is currently being overhead projected from one of the six's laptops onto a matte canvas screen affixed to the narrower and windowless of the room's two load-bearing walls. The room's two non-load-bearing walls are frosted glass internal partitions, through which only the male's beclouded outlines are visible to the rest of the office. The males, ranked here ascendingly by value of height, are 5, Perry Avery, 4, Sean Townsend, 3, Fred Honey and Ray Bannon, tied, 2, Matt Maynard, and 1, Chris Newland. Sean Townsend, ordinarily the first teammate to enliven a post-meeting silence, dedicates the entirety of his executive function toward fabricating something funny to say. Chris Newland sneezes thrice in quick succession. Matt Maynard blesses him once. Ray Bannon, who today wears a tongue-coloured chambray shirt that Perry Avery cannot quite keep his eyes off of, says to no one in particular, Did you hear today's on Kean's last day? Although he seldom thinks about Henry on Kean, for Fred Honey, the act of resignation confers a kind of heroism onto the resignee. He finds himself admiring on Kean for getting out of here. Good for him. Did we hire a replacement yet? Some woman, but she withdrew her application already, Maynard says. Had an issue, family side. Townsend's mind releases a joke. On Kean leaving, big shoes to fill. Five of the males, including Townsend himself, laugh at this witticism. Honey, the lone unlaugher, wears a problem-solving face. Bannon goes, he certainly has a large personality. Townsend leans back, tipping his black plastic chair onto its hind legs. You could say he'll leave a jumbo-sized dent in the, where's he headed, Honey says. On Kean, Maynard says. Hasn't said. Well, haven't asked. Newland fingers the access lanyard that hangs about his neck. Every new starter in the building gets one, but no one else actually wears theirs. I think I heard. He looks around the room for a second before failing to articulate the following straight-facedly. He got headhunted for a tasting job at the M&M store. More group laughter. In a far corner of the room stands a tall, maybe perennial indoor plant. Hard to say from this distance whether it's fake or real. Honey cannot recall, with any certainty, ever having seen it being watered. He's attended Friday morning meetings for two years now and is unsure if the plant has grown at all in that time. All right, Honey says, come on, and the laugh's Peter out. Onkian's been here 11 years, Bannon says. Maynard echoes, 11 years, shakes his head. Avery says, I joined here eight years ago. I was 25, wasn't married, didn't have kids. Four of the six males who aren't Honey or Townsend bite the insides of their cheeks slash lips and or nod sagely. Each of these four meditates briefly on the sailing by of time, pictures the face of a different woman. Townsend, who landed this job out of nepotism and has never worked anywhere else, has another funny thought. He addresses Avery specifically but plays to the room at large. You started here eight years ago and you've been trying to leave for seven. More five-headed laughter, then a recap of open issues and executable actions. Outcomes from today's call. Most urgently, amendments must be made to Avery's presentation deck before it gets sent to client. Bannon and Maynard segue into their weekly recurrent duologue about the possibility of streamlining the firm's approach to project sign-off, which always bottlenecks where senior creative is involved. As this discussion drawns out, Townsend yawns and, seeing him yawn, Honey yawns. Signaling that the meeting is finally adjourned, Avery stands and circles the table, collecting together the presentation printouts he laid out earlier. The colour of that shirt, my god, he thinks, as he passes Bannon by. Newland rises and says something about there being Danishes in the break area, 
and then the rest of the males rise. The sextet leaves the room and soon disbands. But thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I think, yeah, we really appreciate it. And thanks to Faber for uh, setting this up as well, which is very, very kind. Is it Josh? Josh, Josh Smith. Yeah. Josh Smith, you yeah. Thank you to Josh. King. <laughs> He's the king. He's fantastic. Yeah, oh. very nice guy. One of the first questions we had, so reward system is it forensically investigates the world we're living in um, and how often we exactly can become disconnected in this digital age. Um, is writing the book and having it published as a real life object an attempt at this sort of reconnection to something more real? Oh, starting with a real big <laughs> question there. Jeez, uh, Louise, I really thought you were going to do some like nice little rabbit punches before we got. Well, you the do mention like Freud and Heimlich. Yeah, the of course. But I'm, that, yeah, yeah, but only from a complete like layman perspective. But no, I know. I, all right, let me put on my uh, serious <laughs> intellectual hat. I. No, <laughs> I get no, but uh, I mean, it, it, I, it, okay. So the short story, the novel, and this book is sort of somewhere in between those two, right? It's like interconnected short stories that kind of form a, a very loose novel. People have said, I, I, I guess I buy that either way, but those modes and forms do feel sort of inherently like they sort of disrupt a bit of you know, like super optimized capitalist modality. Do, do you know what I mean? Like the, just by virtue of being, they are a bit kind of like fumbly. They are a bit awkward. They're all done by a sort of single person, you know, like they're not manufactured by like a large company that can easily reproduce the object. So I guess in that way, the work of the stories itself feels a bit like it, you know, is kind of like a, I'm trying to put something out there that does reject a lot of the sort of dominant modes of entertainment that are like culturally very popular right now. But I would be completely lying to you if I said that was, had been a part of my thinking going into it, like writing the stories just came out of like almost like dreamlike unawareness of what I was doing. Do you know what I mean? Like I kind of just had to let myself get on with it without really thinking too hard about the themes that I was going to be getting at. Even though I think you're right now, the book is finished. Like those themes do seem very pronounced and like, it really seems like I knew what I was doing, but uh, yeah, it was all pretty improvised. I was going to say, um, there's a great line that both Kate and I picked up on, on uh, page 220. Oh, I know the one is 220. No. <laughs> hey, when, when was the last time you had a full short story without at some point taking an intermission to check your device, refresh your feed? I felt very seen. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> Because brilliant. I think just before I turned to that page, I did get distracted and I did look at the I know, I know. And I'm going to tell myself that's no comment on the book itself. <laughs> no, I mean, no, 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 no. of course. It's, that's a comment on the like colorful rectangles that mm. like completely predatorily like you know demand our attention and which have been like engineered to take us away from the real physical world and the things we actually want to be investing our time in so yeah me putting that in there i did i actually that specific line i remember kind of like prevaricating a bit and like so and i was like i'm not gonna put that in and then i ended up did put it in because it does i don't know it does feel relevant and like you know people were having these conversations like before smartphones were even a thing like in the 90s people would i mean like that was like don delillo's whole thing was like as soon as people stop reading contemporary fiction, like, will they stop being people as we know? You know, something like that. Like you, that shift was already happening in terms of just people, I guess, investing more in like television and movies and I possibly early internet art. But like 
where we are now is like so far advanced in terms of that. Like I'm kind of surprised anyone has read the book in a way. Also because people are, you know, people work harder than ever before. Like there's that thing about um, productivity and wages have kind of like completely detached and now people are working more than ever for less money. So it's like to invest your time in the reading of a short story is like not a minor thing. You know, like people only have a couple of hours free every day. And I really try not to lose sight of that and sort of like keep the work entertaining for that reason. But um, yeah, the, yeah, that is, that is something I think about. Um, I think it's probably a good time to talk about uh, the re- relatability of your stories. Like mm. they're, you're kind of, um, they're really carefully tra- crafted and they're drilling down into the detail of the everyday. Mm. Is it important to you that you're connecting with your readers and they empathize with your characters? Yeah, I guess that is sort of like the whole job. I'm a bit weary about like the empathy stuff in general. People talk a lot about books in terms of empathy and, you know, like they help us generate empathy for people we wouldn't ordinarily or all that stuff I do think is great. And I and I think my book, does, you know, like I do pay attention to that and I do want you to kind of buy into these characters' struggles, even like laughably simple as their struggles might be to someone who would just write them off as like a first world problem or whatever. But at, at the same time, I do think the sort of chief aim of my work is to sort of entertain. Do you know what I mean? And like that that's always the thing I have one eye on when I'm sort of reading back through my work and I'm like, well, that sentence literally just like isn't fun enough. Like I need a reason for someone to invest in that more. Hopefully the character stuff comes out afterwards. And I, and I, that isn't to say that I don't put a lot of thought into that and like try and stretch people's ability to sympathize with people and, and that I don't find that to be an interesting artistic project. But that is, yeah, I, I think for the amount of like conversation around literature right now that that theme takes up so much of i almost think it's disproportionate to the conversation which should just be is the book like kind of enjoyable or not to read which hopefully this one is (laughs) the book is incredibly meaningful though i think um so it's not just entertaining there is there is meaning to it oh of course yeah there's difficulty and stuff in there as well actually someone said in a they were saying it as a compliment and i did take it as a compliment that there's an element of the book that almost feels like self-help because it's like kind of trying to sort of like earnestly attack some base level life reality issues that people have. And I take that as a compliment. I, I don't think it's didactic in as much as there's like, I, it, the book really offers any solutions, but yeah, it's, it's just that sort of thing of like, it's keeping you company for a few hours and it's helping you possibly think through some stuff, you know, like I, I, to, that to me feels like a worthy aim that I can get on board with. I, I think that, yeah, it's interesting that you said that it's sort of been referred to as self-help. It's, I think the only way in that it does that, as far as I can see, is that yeah. it is really good at analysing the processes of our everyday lives. Mm-hmm. It kind of is able to sort of detach and kind of look at what's going on from the big picture and analyse the screen in front of us and what it's yeah. doing and how the algorithms are feeding into it. Right, right, right. And so if someone hasn't had the time to pause and think about them themselves, they're like, oh, okay, yeah, this yeah, guy's yeah. just laid it out for me. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully that does give you a little bit of sort of agency um a really funny thing is though like there have been yeah like some of the things that are in the book are things obviously that like struggles that i share with the characters even just to take like um yeah things about like the technology overuse that we all suffer from as like an example and like that'll be a thing that is kind of like dominating my mind a lot of the time and then when i went back to edit the book i found that it's like already i'd written about the exact same do you know what i mean it's just it's so 
almost like humiliating how completely circular a lot of those problems are because like, I would be thinking about it the whole time and I'd be like, oh, if only I could. And then I would read in my own book, like a line about exactly what I've just been, and like almost like offering a way out. And it's like, well, I, I didn't take that. Like I'm, I'm back where I started, but yeah. It's very interesting you talk about the offering a way out. Um, a lot of the characters in the book, I think uh, there's Julia at the beginning, no, Lena at the beginning, sorry, and then Julia later. And yeah. is it Aunt Keen? Aunt Keen? Oh, yeah, yeah, Henry. Aunt Keen, Henry, yeah, Henry Aunt Keen. Aunt Keen, yeah. They all choose to just escape or abandon the situation they're in. Is that, do you think that is a solution to this problem? <laughs> to just, because I I've, I personally have done that. <laughs> yeah. I was uh, living in the Netherlands for six years and then right. I just completely abandoned the whole life. Did I tell you this? I did not know that. <laughs> Kate, also, Kate looked Wait, at me very strangely. But you you escaped the Netherlands to London. You did it yeah, backwards. Well, you did yeah. the wrong escape. You escaped the wrong thing. I'm not going to get into the Netherlands. No. Okay. okay. <laughs> but it was, yeah, but it was the, 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 the complete and utter sort of just abandonment. It seems like yeah. the only solution for the millennial. Yeah. It's just I, detachment. Because we can't, sorry, I'm just going to go off on one here, but sure. we can't, we can't rely on our phones. Mm. So we just feel that we have to escape somewhere else. And mm -hmm. so we just abandon everything. Is that what you're going for? It's certainly there. And I mean, to be honest, I think that like some of those escapes are a bit more, I mean, the Henry Onkian one is just, it sounds like he's got a slightly better job somewhere else, which is an escape. I would encourage anyone to take if it were open to them. And it, and in fact, so is the Lena one and she's moving abroad and, um, yeah, there are other characters who sort of do. I think that's really interesting. And I am tempted to say that I'm quite not like related to you, but like I'm quite dismissive of the escape plan just in just in terms of I mean, it's that thing of a lot of the problems. Well, OK, a, a lot of the places where people escape to and from. So in this, there's a character escapes from Berlin, which is the city we were talking about just before this recording started. Um, and I know from other conversations I've had recently you know people talk about like New York and um newer places like Athens as you know like places that but they all end up becoming kind of the same right and the social structures around them are all kind of reproduced because of this the way the technology works and you know like everyone is so so I think now now more than ever like that phrase that I makes my toes curl I just said it uh that does you know the escape feels less and less viable really because you're only going to be going somewhere to like a different version of somewhere else and like it feels like this sort of like city structure we've got now even if you go to your cool kind of like upstart smaller city like uh actually i don't want to say anywhere because i don't want to offend anyone but but do you know what i mean like in in five or ten years it will just be exactly the thing you're escaping that, that's from. assuming that the only escapes available are to other cities of course yeah 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 but that but then the characters the book is about mainly are kind of dealing with that like quote-unquote knowledge work do you know what i mean like the email jobs that require you which of course i've had in the past and i will have again but like you know that's the kind of milieu we're all stuck in so we in order for us to be employable in order for us to live our lives you know it does require us to but I, I agree it can seem like really misguided thinking to think that those are the only places available but then when you do live somewhere that is like i mean i guess now with like digital nomadism and you know like the post-covid jobs thing everyone can work from home but also i think we're starting to see that not be the case unless unless people are working from home and um but yeah yeah working from home and kind of escape is leads into the next question um which is that alienation and disconnectedness are such strong themes yeah. throughout the book um, and the sort of increasing digitalization, algorithmic control of our lives. Yeah. 
um, yet here you are writing short stories that end up in a book and we're meeting in person. Does that, does that mean you're hopeful? <laughs> I feel like I've said no to every question you guys ask. Um, I don't, I don't know is the answer. I don't know. That's a difficult one. I'm not, I'm not completely hopeless about like the alienation and also the book I have I have a thing where I think like the world of the book and possibly that maps onto like the world of like the reality in which we're talking now I'm not sure but the certainly in the world of the book the world of the book is very kind of like cold and cynical and like things are very difficult and everything has a market price and it's hard to find something that you can really love but I do think that the characters themselves at least attempt to sort of like redeem themselves or you know redeem that world by like kind of trying to have authentic relationships even though pretty much all of them fail in the book like I, I do think there is that sort of like scratching there like somewhat something is trying to break through so that generally is my cause for opt optimism and I don't feel like completely hopeless and pessimistic about the world in general but at the same time I do think you have to do justice to like the sort of general vibe of the moment right and I mean I'm saying the moment I really mean like it feels like the entire historical period I've been alive for which has been sort of like the managed decline era of like existence which is like everything kind of feels like it's slowly sort of like falling apart and like you have less and less faith in like political process um oh these are some heavy themes I know yeah that's true next one will be nice and happy and uh, very sweet yeah you do very much capture yeah it's a, it's a collapse of the ability to form meaningful relationships almost, isn't it? Like yeah. Just the inability to tell someone else exactly how you're mm -hmm. feeling. Yeah. Unless it's sort of mediated through this digital mm -hmm. smartphone, the black mirror. Yeah, completely. And I think a lot of that is mirrored, you know, like people do have like very reasonable concerns about the future and like where, I don't know, you can, you can, there, that could apply to like literally about 50 different conversations that are happening publicly right now you know like i get climate is the one that seems to be like the most overarchingly kind of like seems like it's going to swallow everything up pretty quickly um and that yeah i guess like i am interested in how people like sort of try and form and navigate relationships in that weird sort of like feeling of sustained crisis that we're in um and then yeah obviously just technology just completely accelerates the problem and sort of takes us away I mean, this is the thing, right? Like we all know it takes us away from our, like the thing about, you know, it stops you, your, when was the last time you finished a short story without picking up your phone to check your feeds? It's like, we all know, like we're all, everyone understands and sees it in each other, but we're all like completely powerless in terms of our own ability, or at least we can feel completely powerless a lot of the time, like in terms of our ability to actually change those things. Um, so I think, I think just, yeah, it wasn't even like part of my project really, but I, I think just that is so the fabric of people's every day now that like to not write about it is almost like kind of feels like you're writing about 10 years ago rather than right now, right? Like you, that is a lot of people's thought pattern now. And if you want to do something that is like feels very contemporary, you kind of have to touch on it. I, I was just thinking about that. I have a, a handful of friends who don't have smartphones. Yeah, that rules. Um, And so it's sort of, I, I guess in the book that your characters are assuming that everybody has the same habit for sure for sure yeah and so it's kind of um a very particular type of person yeah particular age group yeah i suppose do, do you think that's the case or do you do you think the whole population is taken it, it it sometimes gave me the impression that the whole world was taken over by their smartphones and kind of couldn't communicate without thinking about how they're presenting themselves yeah um 
I mean, I think there is like reasonable evidence to suggest that that this sort of like almost toxically self-involved thinking is becoming quite pervasive just because of general cultural changes that aren't strictly to do with smartphones. But I, I do think the smartphone usage uh, is kind of, is, is quite insidious. And like, you know, I see it in my own like loved ones, like people who are way out, you know, out of my generation. Um, I do think that is kind of a lot of people's every day. And again, like, I don't mean to be like completely critical of the whole enterprise of technology. Like, you know, I'm not like a, a complete Luddite, but um, yeah, like the, the conscientious objector thing of like your friends, like reject, you know, like refusing to actually participate in the smartphone reality is like something that when you hit the dumb phones, I guess people call them, when you almost hear someone talk about it, it's like so staggeringly, re- do you know what I mean? Like I had a dumb phone for a while, a few years ago, and it was like, it really felt like this huge radical act. I mean, it wasn't like no one really cared, but it does increasingly feel like a really insane thing to do. And I, and I guess the sad reality is, is that for a lot of people's work, like we were saying before about the email jobs and, you know, the jobs you can kind of get in any city, um, those are probably quite hard to get hold of if you're sort of like completely off the grid that way, or at least off the digital grid. The BLB podcast is brought to you by Bricklane Bookshop. As a thank you for listening to us prattle on about short stories, they're offering all listeners a 10% discount. Just use the code BLBPOD, that's B-L-B-P-O-D, at the checkout for 10% off any purchase from bricklanebookshop.org. I, um, I read an interview that you, you did, you said that you, you wrote a lot of reward system while you were at your old job. And yeah. you were writing in kind of address bars and on yeah, spreadsheets. Yeah, yeah. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that writing process? I was working full time as a copywriter. Um, I was a contractor in a sort of, uh, I guess you would say, like a design firm uh, with mostly like very nice people, and you know they're all pretty cool. But at the same time, everyone was sort of sitting there, and you know, in a lot of these offices, like quote unquote creative industry offices. Um, you really only have a couple of hours work to do a day, right? And then the rest of it, you are just sort of like in and out of your random inboxes and like people are just kind of like surfing the internet. There's always like a couple of like really harried like project managers who are working insanely hard and like are like staying like an extra couple of hours every night to get something done, which is very sad. But like the general milieu of those places I have found is that people are quite underworked. Um, And I was finding that myself and just kind of needed to yeah like not flip out and go completely insane there's a really good book have either of you guys read or heard of uh david graber's bullshit jobs mm-hmm. yeah. I know david graber, but yeah. yeah that's a really great book and i read that at the time like when i was kind of feeling like peak frustration of just like these are literally like i think it says it somewhere in the book it's like these are my like precious life moments just passing me by and it's like on the one hand it's kind of like a bit of a syrupy like oversimplified way of putting it but then at the same time it's like it is your life and you like should be trying to assert agency in ways that make you feel not despair right do you know what i mean like when you when you pray when you reframe it that way and graber talks about this thing of um he got i think he calls it uh i don't so call it creative warfare or something like that but it's basically the idea that like while you're at your desk you can focus on another project and then i had also read um a thing about george saunders that he wrote his first collection over like an insanely long period of time i think it took him like nine years or something but he wrote it while he was at his desk and like literally would just wait until people were out of eye shot is eye shot a thing uh eye line sight line yeah <laughs> um and uh 
he would just kind of like sit there and tap out stories, um, which I also thought was like insanely cool. A couple of other writers, I know William T. Volman did the same thing. And that just really resonated for me as like a thing I could try and do. I had been trying to write short stories for like years before that, but had been giving up all the time. And then, yeah, gradually I, you just kind of have enough. And like, I think if you really have it in you, and I guess this is where we start getting into like the advice portion of the thing maybe, but like, I think if you really do have an urge to do it, you'll do it. Like, I don't really feel the need to encourage people all that much. Oh, that sounds bad. I don't, I certainly wouldn't discourage it, but do you know what I mean? Like, I think there are people out there who will just kind of do it no matter what, like they'll be in any situation and will be kind of like making notes, like in a notebook or on their phone or whatever. And I, and I think increasingly other writers are doing that, which seems cool to me. Like that seems like a good way of getting around the problem. Um, cause you are sort of like in the conditions that are like pretty decent to write in, right? Like you, are you have to be, you're mandated to be at a desk and you can't really like do much stuff me, away from it. It sounds like a dream job. Like I worked in a bookshop for a long time. Yeah. We were just busy all day. And yeah. Like, and so the idea of being paid for two hours actual work a day and then having time and space to write for the rest <clears> of the day. Completely. Yeah, it's one of those things that's like, it's almost like a monkey's paw type wish where it's like, you kind of get exactly what you want, but it's like kind of drives you insane. Like, like, like with those office jobs, like I've done when I was a lot younger and then like intermittently like much more manual jobs. And then also like I've worked in coffee shops and restaurants and stuff. And it's like, don't get me, obviously the sort of like white collar work is preferable in terms of you can kind of like customize your day a little bit more. Like you're not just you know in serving people who like don't appreciate you at all and barely even think you're a real person um so that and i mean yeah again like to get onto the advice thing like if i was going if someone really feels the urge to i would say think about that like that to me did work quite well as a sort of mode of like giving myself a bit of time every day to sort of like I mean, theft is literally called time theft. It is a crime. So not that I'm encouraging your listeners, but you know, like at the end of the day, you have to be practical with this stuff. Like if, you know, like if I feel like I've said this in a bunch of interviews now, but it's like, you're going to blink and two years will have gone by. Like that is just what happens. And like, if you feel the need to write, like reclaim your time. Do you, and now that you, I don't think you said earlier that you're not doing that job anymore. Has has your your writing style, the way you're thinking about it, shifted because you're not forced to sort of write in snatches of time like that? Or I'll say this, and I and I hope this, like I hope your listeners um, feel encouraged by this after I've said the thing about being discouraging before. But like I have found, it has actually really not made that much of a difference to like the quality of my thinking. Or I mean, obviously there there were times where I was like, so I was. We said before the interview, I wrote probably about like half to a third possibly somewhere in between of the book like while I wasn't in paid work or wasn't just working at weekends or in evenings um and you know where I was just able to dedicate my time to it fully and to me the difference on the page isn't actually all do you know what I mean like I, it it took longer I'm sorry sorry it took less time to write those pages sure but I'm a pretty slow worker anyway so I hope that encourages people out there for to hear me say that like, no, the quality of the work I don't think actually did change that much. Like I, I view that as a as a positive to be honest. Like, you know, I think that's a nice thing because it means whatever your do you know what I mean? However you can attack this, like however you can take this on in your own life. So so long as you're spending enough time on it and revising it enough and going back to it again and again and keeping your brain in that file and on that work, like if you're able to do that, I think it will come. Um, regardless of what your situation is, I hope. I think that could be a good 
sort of segue into like you've been published by Faber, which is incredible, which is a really, really yeah, it's a it's, it's a great cool. achievement. And yeah. maybe you could just talk about the how you got to that point, how you got to be published by Faber. Yeah, 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 for sure. So how I came to Faber was I so I had written a story that got published in a magazine, The Stinging Fly. That got seen by an agent in London who then uh, uh, simultaneously that got seen by an agent in London and also an editor for Granta magazine uh, who both the agent asked if I would like to be represented and the editor asked if they could publish a new piece of work for me. So that kind of like advanced the thing pretty quickly. Then I will say after that, there were like kind of a couple of years of like me, like, you know, like, or possibly not, you know, like a year plus of me kind of like slowly putting things together and hesitating, which I would advise anyone to do. But um, th those things did end up happening. Like I went with the agent and got something published in Granta. Then, um, yeah, having an agent really was my pathway into Faber. I think like they have quite a good relationship, you know, like the London publishing world is like quite small like everybody seems to know each other and they all have like pretty decent relationships. The encouraging thing I would say about that is I, I do really believe that that is quite a replicable way of being published in terms of like you can put stuff. I mean, I understand that for me it happened quicker than for other people, but I did at the same time put an insane amount of work into that first story that got people's heads turning, you know, like that took me months and months and months you know like possibly even a year to finish you know and like and a year of like constant dogged work of just like going back over each sentence and being like why doesn't that work why could that work better you know what could go there so uh, but it's it compared to other industries that's kind of like what I always think is it's like you know if you were in music or if you were in the, the art world you'd be kind of completely fucked so, oh sorry to swear okay so it's after watershed but like do you know what i mean like those things really do rely on a lot of like networking and sort of have you been to the right school and do you know this person like i can say from first-hand experience that for me i i do think you know like the, the slush pile is a real thing like you can send your thing into somewhere someone will see it and they'll like there are, there are a limited number of places in these journals and you know their circulation within the publishing world is, is pretty decent. So I do think you have quite a good, you know, like that, that to me seems like a, a really solid like way of getting people to, to read your work. It's interesting hearing you touching on your editing process then. Um, I, I'm curious about the, the opening story, a restaurant somewhere else. Yeah. It's kind of written in um, a series of micro scenes. Pretty much like the entire of my self editing process is all about revision. Like I'll just go back to the same thing again and again and again, like, you know, for weeks. I think the opening sentence of that story, uh, I want to see if I can, wait, one of you open the book and I'll see if I can get it from memory. <laughs> we can read it out for you. Wait, can I see if I can get it from memory and then you see if <laughs> yeah. you can get it from, okay, I think it's, at the beginning of a December, 57 harvests prior to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations projected start date for the era of total global soil infertility, Julia got the job at Cassine. Absolutely okay. perfect. But the reason why that's word perfect is because that took weeks, right? Like it, it just took me so long. Like, and I know other I know other writers do take less time and also their opening sentences aren't quite so long and finicky, but like you know, it it things like that require a huge, you know, you, you have to 
be viewing it from every possible angle in order for it to, because you want it to hit as many people as it can possibly hit, right? George Saunders. Talking as if you're kind of um, doing search engine optimization. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I need to get all the AdWords in there. Well, that is kind of the background I come and like technical writing. And, you know, they're as cynical as it as the industry is, like there are a lot of useful lessons, you know, like you like good copy is good copy, right? Um, and they're... Yeah, you really want, I have a couple of cool things I've heard about editing that have really stuck with me. I know Tao Lin says something which is about like when you're in the editing process, you're trying to save the reader as much time as possible, which I think is a really good way of thinking about it. And I've also heard George Saunders say that, I mean, uh, this is just like from reading their stuff. I know George Saunders says that if you come back to the same sentence enough times with like enough sort of like different quality of attention, you end up with a piece of work that's smarter than you. And that I really feel that way. Like, you know, if you can totally tax every sentence for everything it's worth, like some of those sentences I would never be able to think of. Uh, do you know what I mean? Like very rarely do I like hit something down and get it on the f first try. But the nice thing about writing is that it's it's just you and the document and you can kind of really take it at your own pace. And like, you know, there probably isn't a rush. Like very few writers are so in demand that they're like having to struggle to meet. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, also in a way that is um, you are managing your own time and that can be stressful in its own way, but... Yeah, I think you just, yeah, that that for me, like in, in terms of getting that story right, uh, it was just a huge amount of, another thing I'd recommend, sorry, I, now I really am going the self-help route of just like telling, but I, I hope someone hears this and it's useful, um, is uh, different, for, you know, like printing it out and like print it in a different font and print it at a different font size, like anything you can do to make it feel unfamiliar to you as you reread it, I think is really useful because you'll kind of approach it like it's someone else's work and you can just be a lot more critical of that. Whereas if it's something that like, I really know that I've worked so hard on, I'll be like, I never want to change that. But you know that, and the bits just sort of like start to fall away quite easily like that. Like you can kind of really clearly tell what's working and what isn't. I, I think the trick is to be able to disassociate yourself from your own writing. I, I think time is probably the best thing. I for doing that, agree, yeah. but if I think I agree with you about shifting the form, if you can read it as a PDF or in a different yeah. color or yeah. an e-reader, suddenly yeah, yeah, yeah. it's really fun to just cross out like with the yeah, you know. and everything just seems so much more apparent. I also um, for some of the stories in there, like I would like some of the really dialogue-heavy ones, I would just read it and like you know like try and hear it out and sort of yeah sorry read it out loud uh and try and really make sense of the sound of it and like does a conversation even sound like that obviously it's the whole thing isn't like some of the dialogue is a bit like elevated and not how people would really talk and that's good that's what i wanted it to be but um yeah like i think that's the only way you know you know what the shape of your work should be right it's just like constantly coming back to it and constant revision i know it's really boring and it's one of those things as well where like you people who ask about that it's like well it's one of those things where you already know the answer to the question you just don't really want to do you know what i mean like no one wants to do that it's literally the least fun thing or at least starting it I heard the last person i interviewed for this podcast oh, said God. that he hated writing and he loved editing ah, that's what okay, he was okay, like okay. up for doing i can see that actually because editing you you're editing you're like putting yourself out there a bit less like and you're you kind of get to be like the crotchety old man that we all secretly are like do you know what I mean? where you get to be like no nah, this isn't good like you kind of know but um, the other thing, another thing I've found helpful and I've been thinking about a lot recently is like, you can't, a lot of things can be faked and can be like covered over and sort of like papered by. But like 
one thing that is really innate that you kind of can't fraud your way through is interest. Like some things are really naturally interesting and some things just aren't. And I think you have to ask yourself that question of just like, is this interesting? Like, and that is why I take so long is because I'll do something and I'll be like, fucking hell, like that, you know, that might really show off like my ability to, you know, use a bunch of verbs simultaneously in this complex, cool way. But it's like, it literally is not drawing me in at all. And like, I think if you can keep a good handle on that, like internal gauge of like what feels interesting and what doesn't, you'll kind of be guiding yourself towards the right decisions. Oh, this is, I should be charging for this. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think that's true. Like in, uh, you mentioned George Saunders. I read yeah. a book, you know, a Swim and a Pond oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. And he, he's talking about the editing process in that. And <laughs> Really, all it is is you rereading your work again and again and again, yeah. going, I like that, I don't like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yes, I've read that too. And so much of what I'm saying has like, but yeah, his thought, he obviously has like the best thoughts on on this whole process. And it's it's so interesting to hear it from him as well, because he really, his stories, I mean, I know that they're not, but they're like, a lot of them are like so minimal. They're not simple, but they are can be quite spare yes spare yeah exactly and it's like so you almost think it's like oh he must have literally just like this was one brainwave he had but you know what i mean and it's like and also a lot of them feel kind of like freewheeling and like messy in a way like almost improvised where you're like he probably just got down there and did that but it's like no there's no way it's like it's also studiously rehearsed and technical which is really great like you know that it comes off feeling so like fresh and exciting um yeah i, I really love george saunders i think he's fantastic what I wanted to ask you specifically was about the final story, which is the which was a COVID story. I oh think yeah, you call it a COVID story. When was all, that? All the listeners <laughs> just turned off now. <laughs> no, it's it's. I think it's fascinating because obviously we're going to start seeing them now, mm. and I was a bit surprised to see that at the end because yeah. I thought, like, oh, that must have been written fairly recently. Or yeah. When was that? When was it written in terms of like? Obviously, was it last? Did you? Yeah, that was the last thing I. That was the last thing I wrote, like a draft of. You know, like other things, I kind of like had to go back to and finish and make quite significant changes to. But that was the last thing I uh, did the did the full thing of, and that was in. I actually can't. My like, I mean, I guess with everyone, oh, it's such a boring thing to say, but my like cope, my memory. Oh, I can't even begin this sentence because it's so boring and trite. My memory of time in COVID is really warped. And no, I can't remember when anything happened like everyone else. I, I'm pretty sure that all I was, was working. time strange for you too. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that was all happening uh, that first summer of COVID, you know, and I wrote, that was probably like the quickest story to write just because I did kind of want to get this feeling in of like, you know, we're kind of going through something that like does feel you know, you do kind of want to be on the pulse with it. And like, you're either, and I also feel a bit gleeful about that because I kind of got to write about it, but I, it only had to be a short story. I knew that short story was able to do exactly what I want, you know, able to set the tone for exactly how I wanted to end the book anyway. I still got to use, do you know what I mean? So I feel kind of smug that I like managed to get that in there. If you're writing a novel and you have to, do you know what I mean? Or if you're writing a novel over lockdown and you had to kind of like, work that in a bit more i don't know how you do that well there's some people i really like that rachel cusp book second place which i don't even think she like explicitly talks about COVID, but it's like has that uh isolated feeling right of like they're all in the house together and like that seems to be really productive i think um 
Yeah, I don't, that, that to me was just like kind of a natural fit of just like, I'm in this moment. It kind of, I, I would feel, that was the other thing is like, I was finding it really hard, especially in the scary time when like people didn't know what the death tolls were or anything. Not that like they got any better, but do you know what I mean? When it was like, oh, this seems like it's just going to literally like ravage like the country, which it actually did do just slower than it, I guess. like. It, um, but that was, yeah, it just kind of felt insane to be thinking about anything else. And I was like, well, I know I have to like do some work. And I just thought, yeah, I'd, I'd fit it in that way. And um, yeah, hopefully it like stands the test of time. It addresses it um, very kind of clearly and it sort of shares the reality we all went through. I th- I, there's, there's one more question that I want to ask about the final line of the book in which you say, do you, do you know what it is? Can you quote it? Uh, yeah, hold on. First of all, I'm going to tell everyone... Stop listening now if you don't want a huge spoiler. It's great. The final line of the book. Go out, head to your locals. Oh, head to the Brick Lane Bookshop and buy it now. Uh, a Child's Fear of the Dark. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, you say that, that yeah. is, uh, the smartphone is a child's fear of the dark. Yeah, that's, that's the drive that brings you back to it again and again. Yeah. Are you going to ask about what that, what I think? I, I'd just like you to, um, if you would like to, you kind yeah. of elaborate on the idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, no, I mean, so that, okay. Wow, you've really knocked me for six with this question because I've never been asked anything so directly. Uh, okay, I guess the idea for me is that, well, that that it, it is what it is, right? So it's fear, right? Like that that's kind of like the way we, well, I'm, I'll speak for myself. That's the way I move through the world is like I make fear-based decisions. I worry about things all day, you know, um, and my reprieve from that increasingly is my use of technology, which kind of allows me to sort of like think in this, you know, it's all kind of gamified. There's an earlier line in one of the stories that I was like pretty proud of where I think it's, I think it's in the dating app story where the female user says something like time in time spent in a device feels like it happens in real time and time outside of a device feels like it happens in slow motion. Like, and I, th- I think I am becoming increasingly aware that like it's doing, there's something deeply wrong with that. Like people talk a lot about, you know, oh, can you like moderate your usage? And I don't, I think those are productive conversations. And I certainly like try to keep things, you know, and like, can you be more mindful around your smartphone usage? That's all great. And I do think that's useful. But I think a thing that like I'm starting to realize is it's like, it's literally the mechanism of the device is the sort of like sickness that Mark Fisher, who I quote somewhere in the book, also talks about smartphones as a communicational parasite. And I think that's like really an instructive way of thinking about them because it does, yeah, the way that it allows you to kind of, another Mark Fisher thing is the idea of depressive hedonia, which is also to do with smartphone usage. So the idea there is it's like, you're doing the thing that kind of like you derive a slight amount of pleasure from, but it's all done in this sort of like depressive register, which like doesn't bring you any closer to like actual happiness. One last Mark Fisher thing. He also talks about like the smartphone is capable of giving off a very low level of jouissance. So like it basically gives you like the minimum possible amount of like excitement to keep you coming back from it. So these are all things I think are like going to become increasingly destructive in the next few decades, I guess. And that have already sort of like really destroyed people's personal relationships beyond like recognition. And that's why I was getting at, but yeah, I know. Okay. Yeah. I've, look, I, you have to ask another question because we can't end on that note. That's mental. <laughs> I think it's fine. It's, it's yeah. really interesting. Yeah, it's really, I, think, I think it's fine yeah. because there is no, you, I don't think anyone's expecting you as the author to come up with the solution no. to this problem. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I was happy with the way that final line came out and I like that it kind of, it's quite cold. Like, and I, uh, 
in a, in a way that does feel real. And I, I, again, that thing I said earlier about like, you're in this sort of like loop. There's another part where a character, I think it's like, he gets bored of reading an email on his smart on his laptop and goes away and takes out his phone. And then like absently just starts reading the exact same email on his phone. Mm -hmm. And it's like, again, yeah, possibly there is something in terms of representing that and talking about it where you can at least sort of like start to drive a wedge between like, cause that's how this stuff gets you is it's also thoughtless and it all seems like the immediate most logical thing to do is like, well, I got two minutes, I'll just take it. And it's like, even just getting like a tiny bit of perspective is kind of like draws you back a little bit into yourself uh, and away from this kind of like, weird discombobulating mechanism that's kind of like screwing us up but um yeah wow good question i I haven't thought that hard about yeah but that's cool the question we ask everyone that comes on the podcast yes which is just which books or writers do you always return to i think you've answered some of these you know you've mentioned mark fisher and george saunders Mm. but also who are you reading now yeah okay um i just recommended to you kate just before we started the podcast i recommended a really good book called oval by elvia wilk and I know she's got a book of nonfiction coming out soon, which I haven't read yet. But that book I found really cool in terms of, you know, it's 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 like set slightly in the future. It's doing a few things with the genre form, but it's like incredibly, I don't know, kind of like weird and evasive in a way that's really fun to read. And also similarly, like kind of like tugging at the strings of like the issues we all know we have and fictionalizing them in really interesting ways. I found that to be like a really exciting and rewarding read and I'd recommend like anyone pick that up. Also another book I really quickly want to shout out because I don't think it's got very much love over here is a book called The Creep by a guy called Michael Lapointe. Uh, he's a Canadian writer. That actually is also a sort of genre thing, kind of kind of on similar lines. Um, and yeah, I'll let people research that for themselves, but that's fantastic. And in terms of writers I've gotten into recently, I recently went on a really big Richard Yates kick. Have either of you guys? The Easter Parade. I love for yes. about a year. Yeah, I love the Easter Parade so much. Yeah, I've I like I've been I'm looking at you like you've got to read it now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's really great. The first line of it is something like, the neither Grimes of the Grimes sisters', sisters, sisters yeah. lives were happy. Yeah. And you're like, that is the understatement of the fucking century. <laughs> it's, it's, it's such a good book. And the the end section of that i i like i'm thinking about all the time Uh, again spoiler like people are going to read it but i just kind of just like ends with this woman like she's basically you you basically just like watch this woman's life play out and she kind of like she doesn't even do anything that crazy yeah it's it's not even like that you know she's not like memorably horrific or you know she has her arguments she drinks too much but like anyway you know like she lies to people but in ways that one would expect someone does in the course of their life but like by the end she's just like vibrating with loneliness like it's just it's a crazy thing to read like you you you're kind of like how did we end up here but it feels like completely plausible with everything that's come before it i th- i think yeah i've i've really been reading a lot of richard and like all his stuff you know like some of his books are weaker than others i think he wrote something like 11 novels and two collections of short stories like but they're all pretty fucking great like i i really like his work a lot and um yeah i'd, I'd pretty much recommend any of them to anyone yeah um, maybe now is a good time to wrap up the co- podcast yeah. and um, thank Jim Calder yeah. for joining us today oh, at Faber yeah. um, and to remind everyone listening that Reward System is available right now and Jem is going to be doing an event at Brick Lane Bookshop, I don't know if it's before or after this podcast goes out, around the same time. So if you can't yes. make the event at the bookshop, listen to the podcast that you just listened to. <laughs> yeah, listen to it again. Yeah, and pretend that it was yeah. on a stage with Nicole Flattery. Very cool. That's exciting. She's going to be there. Thank you very much. Yeah, That's thanks so much for having solid me. Solid recommendation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is, this is a lot of fun. Cool. Yeah, yeah well, thank, thanks for the podcast. It was great having you. Yeah.
have a successful performance. Uh, this podcast was brought to you by Brick Lane Bookshop. Music was by Andrew Everett, and it was produced and edited by Kate Ellis and Peter J. Coles. Find us at bricklanebookshop.org or wherever you find podcasts.